Welcome to my den. What if I told you that a college football team went from their defense being the third or fourth worst in the entire country to the top defense in just one year? And the reason they were able to do that was because of micro learning. Yeah, I know it sounds crazy. I was literally shocked when our guest today, Chris Sturbank, shared with me that one of their clients literally had that type of game-changing result from implementing micro-learning in their, their strategies and their, and their team games. So let me just introduce you to Chris because he's super cool. Uh, Chris is the CRO of Learn to Win, where they're focused on the last mile of learning, really where, you know, the last miles where the actual actionable learning happens. And I call Chris the prime minister of micro learning because that's exactly what they do so incredibly well is help companies implement these micro learning tactics instead of looking at long training programs that ultimately are difficult information for most humans to retain. I absolutely love the work that they're up to. And if you really pay special attention in this conversation today, you're going to hear some tips on how to integrate micro learning into your organization. Also the power of tech and the fact that as Gen Zers, we're entering a new generation of learning and development where micro learning is becoming so increasingly important as attention spans compress, as Chris puts it. And we are literally going to see through this conversation, Chris's thoughts on uh, what he calls flipped learning and the education system and what we can do to improve that to make active learning a norm in our classrooms. If you enjoy today's conversation, I highly recommend you check out Learn to Win's Agile Learning Guide for Sales Leaders. They've got a micro series. And um, as you can see, we're kind of on this kick right now of sales and venture capital. And Chris, of course, is also an investor. Um, I just think this is such an interesting time, especially with the world we're in right now where fundraising is so difficult. And, um, you know, we're post SVB and that entire crisis. And it's just fascinating to talk to some people who can give us a perspective into what's really important these days. So uh, pick up that guide. Link is in the show notes and you will be, you're just in for a treat in today's conversation. I'm super, super pumped for you to meet Chris. Of course, you can connect with him on LinkedIn as well. It's Chris Sturbank. Um, check for, <laughs> check the show notes for the spelling of his name. All right, without further ado, buckle up your seats or your time machines if you're cool like that and join me in my living room with the amazing Chris Sturbank. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where we unpack the collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. I believe that if you don't have a Native Digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or at least one you pay to pester you like a fly in your ear, your business won't survive. Let's change that today. I wanted to mention is with 
this topic, or I know we talked about a couple of ideas last time, mm-hmm. but I know mostly what you guys do is micro learning, but I'd love to expand beyond that. So we, are there any other, I guess, new things with you guys looking at revenue that's going to be way higher next year? Like, are there any exciting things that you're launching or want to talk about? It's not so much that the product's changing, it's just kind of the use case. Um, okay. About half of our commercial business is in sales, training, sales enablement. Um, but the other half is possibly more interesting, but much more fragmented, which is frontline worker type roles. So okay. it's any sort of role where people need to do technical training and certification before they could do their jobs. So we've got, you know, nursing programs, teams that do solar power panels, installation, or the trades, the HVAC electricians and things. Okay. And that's that's very interesting to us because it's a ginormous market, right? But again, it's very fragmented. So we're just kind of experimenting there. Gotcha. Gotcha. I know when we when we first spoke, which was, this is super cool. You said you never get to talk on any podcast about your love for sports. What what did you play growing up? Like, what, what have you gotten into? What have you been able to keep playing? Because that's mostly what I'm interested in. Because I'm like, I'm here. I'm 24. I am not. I'm your opposite, Chris, of, of an athlete. <laughs> My sister was a professional gymnast for until she was, I guess, 12 or 13. And she got invited to Olympic training. And my parents were like, no, we, we're not sending our 12-year-old to <laughs> Olympic training. Anyway, I'm the exact opposite of that. So consider me a rookie. What sports do you love? And, and what have you been able to keep playing um i grew up in the midwest and uh, south of chicago and played pretty much everything as a kid um and then uh we moved to california when i was in high school and so that was the end of my ice hockey career pretty much because uh, there really wasn't much ice in the bay area but uh, i played football i played baseball i played basketball i ran track um and that was most of like all the way through high school and then uh since then, uh, a little bit of uh, volleyball and softball um, and golf. And then uh, the body has gradually started to break down. And so the more vigorous sports have had to stop. So the other, in a lot of it was a result of being, um, I used to ride BMX and I was a skateboard rat. And you just pound the crap out of your body. And as a kid, you don't really care, but it comes back to get you later. So um, I've had to gradually kind of ease off of all of the vigorous, violent sports, and all I have left now is golf. So, <laughs> maybe a better question would have been, "What sports did you not play?" <laughs> that list probably would have been short. Yeah, yeah, probably. I just if oh, it was okay. fast and it required, um, you know, a, it was exciting, it was dangerous and fast. It was probably something I would try. So, with golf, what do you have any favorite courses around the country that you play, or even the world? Yeah, I'm a I'm a full on full blown golf geek. So my top tracks are some of the ones that are the obvious ones. So St Andrews over in Scotland, gotten a chance to get over there a few times. Uh, Bally Bunyan in Ireland are probably my two favorite international courses. Um, and then I play hundreds of courses in California. And then I've probably I've kind of done it for my son the other day. I play golf in like 31 states and eight countries at this point. So, oh my gosh, wow! You have to really love something to do it in that many different places. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I have to ask this because I, let's just say the first time I went on a golf course, um, it looked like a, you know, uh, a groundhog had been there. <laughs> Me trying to swing on the course, you know, I'm knocking up dirt and the turf and all that. Like it was bad. Yep. Yep. So when you're first starting out, is there like a hump that you have to get over that's that most players experience 
before they love it? Like, does everyone start out like me, just absolutely hating it, can't even hit the ball sort of thing? And where does that hump occur? Yeah, that's pretty normal. It's It, it looks so easy <clears throat> until you try to do it. And then you're like, the ball's not even moving. Why is it so hard to hit it properly, right? <laughs> Unlike a baseball or something, right? Um, so I definitely recommend if you're going to play, get a, get a series of like two or three lessons from a pro. And they'll teach you the fundamentals, which is basically things like your stance and your grip and some real basic stuff. And if you start with good fundamentals, pretty quickly you start to get the ball up in the air all the time, which is the first big hump. Instead of hitting the grounders, you getting it up in the air, right? Um, and then after you start to get a little more control over that, then you start to work on score. And then course management and other bits come in. But that very first big hump that everybody battles, no matter how much they play, is the looking at the ball long enough to hit it and get it in the air thing. So I'm a, I'm, I play 50 plus rounds a year, and I still probably do it a couple, two, three times a round where I'll just you lose concentration for that split second and your head's not in the right spot and the ball goes squirting off on the ground somewhere. It's not good. <laughs> that makes me feel better, but <laughs> good to know other people experience that as well. I'm, I, I have good hand-eye coordination. Just golf is golf is not my, <laughs> but maybe, maybe if we ever get to meet in person, then you can be the pro and teach me. You have go. you, have you ever played with any interesting people? Um, yeah, so uh, I've played with lots of different people. Um, a lot of it is related to the industry that we're in in tech. Uh, but also there's, because I live about 45 minutes north of Monterey Pebble Beach area, there's a lot of celebrities and people that are down there all the time. Uh, so I got to play with Ernie Banks, who was a Chicago Cub way back in the day. And um, I warmed up right next to Clint Eastwood one time at Spyglass. He was in the next, next, next thing over. I got to check out his swing. Um, so stuff like that, you see a lot of those sightings down in that area, especially around January when the tournament's in town. So basically what you're saying is everybody else did, did their thing, right? Play for the Cubs, whatever. And then they end up at the, at, at, at playing golf right there and you get to meet all the cool people. Exactly. I think there's a lot of people that are successful, even in other sports, but certainly in business. And then they, then they tackle golf and they're like, oh, this is a whole new level of challenge. And and it's funny to see people that are, you know, professional athletes struggle with the game just like everybody else because it's just, it's weird and it's hard. <laughs> I can totally, totally relate. And they're probably, you know, like me, I don't know about Clint Eastwood, but maybe he got out there in his 40s or something and yeah. was making the ground look like a groundhog had been there too. So, you know, <laughs> so we'll, we'll get off golf in a second, but I'm just so curious. Mm -hmm. What is the, do you know how golf courses are taxed? Like, because obviously there's so much land. Yeah. How do you maintain there's, that? There's a couple, two, three different styles of golf clubs. So a lot of them are owned by the cities. So those would be the municipal golf courses. And so they don't pay any tax because they're they're part of the local government infrastructure, right? And so they're subsidized or supported by the greens fees that the players pay in. Um, most of the cities actually are able to make money on their municipal golf courses. Um, it's going to change, I think, in the Southwest because of the cost of water is going up so fast. So there's a big focus in across all golf courses about reducing their water footprint. But that's that's the public courses um, that are city-owned. And then you've got public, what you call a daily fee or resort course. So they could be associated with like a resort hotel or a standalone. And they're a for-profit corporation. And a lot of those are operated by big golf operating companies. True North is probably one of the biggest ones. American golf is another. These guys uh, manage like hundreds of courses around the country. And then you've got private country clubs, which are definitely for profit. <laughs> um, but they basically 
collect all their fees from their members, right? And so whenever they do any sort of assessments to build stuff, they'll charge their members. Um, both the daily fee and the private courses, because they're for-profit corporations, pay taxes on the profit. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's always been a, a question I've had because I just a couple of weeks ago I was in um, Key Largo speaking at the Ocean Reef Club, and of course, mm-hmm. you know every every square foot of that island is prime real estate, obviously, right? Yeah. And then of course they have these beautiful, massive golf courses, and it's you know there's member fees, whatever, but just taxes wise, it's got to be very interesting if you don't structure it correctly. I I used to work for um, Biltmore Estate, which is, you're probably familiar with it, giant. You know, they have 8,000 acres now. It used to be about 120,000, I believe, when the Vanderbilts owned it. And then, of course, they sold part of it to Pisgah National Forest. And, and anyway, long story longer, the 8,000 acres now, literally out of every dollar, because it's a private company, it's not like they are a museum or a nonprofit. They're private companies. Out of every dollar they bring in, I believe it's about thirty to forty percent of that goes to taxes, just on the land. You know, that's yeah. not even in- accounting for the salaries for three thousand employees they have, the the upkeep, the maintenance, the historic preservation, like any of that. They don't get any breaks. And that just, it just blows my mind when you think about something like a golf course or a national preserve or anything like that that's privately owned, Yeah. just how many hoops they have to jump through. Yeah, most of the newer public and private courses are being built as part of housing developments. And that's how they kind of subsidize that, right? They'll buy a, a chunk of land, they'll sell plots, right? And that pays for the golf course construction and usually gives them kind of a war chest of cash as well when they launch the whole community. Smart. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to have it attached to something, right? Mm-hmm. It's cool. <laughs> and I, yeah, the, this is, this is fascinating, but I can't wait to get into talking about micro learning, which is why we're here. Why I can't wait to have this conversation with you, Chris. So mm-hmm. tell me about your, your background. First of all, why, why micro learning? how do you land in this position? So interestingly, this is my first ever go in a tech that's focused on training or learning in my career, which is kind of interesting. So uh, I've got a degree in computer science, and I've been in the tech industry on the sales and business development side for 35 years now. Um, The bulk of it has been around more kind of traditional IT infrastructure, and in the last 15 or 20 years, a lot of cybersecurity stuff. Um, so more like point solutions designed to protect or run your networks and those kinds of things. Um, I was introduced to the folks at Learn to Win by a former CEO of mine. And I started just to have an informal kind of advisory relationship with the founders there and was intrigued by what they were doing. Again, going back to the sports geek aspect of it, their origin story was the original platform was developed for coaches to train athletes. And specifically, it was the University of North Carolina football team. So rather than hand somebody a big fat notebook and go learn these plays, they could do all of their learning in their phones. And so that was their very first customer on the platform. And we've since gone wide into hundreds of professional college and high school teams in lots of different sports, which is really, really interesting. And so the big takeaway there is that it's not only is it the way that the the learners prefer to consume the training. In this case, it's all athletes. So they're all in, in college and high school. So you're looking at 13 to 22 typically. 
Uh, but it's easy enough for the coaches to build good, compelling, scalable training for them. They're doing game film breakdown. They do quizzing and things like that. And I don't know if you're a football fan, but they have this concept of installing new plays where you train everybody how to do a certain thing a certain way. And then you got to make sure that by the weekend, they all know how to execute it properly. So that when it comes to game time and the ball gets snapped, they all do the right thing together, right? And so that's that's where the company got started. I found that really intriguing. You know, LA Rams, Pittsburgh Penguins, there's a NASCAR team that uses the product. I'm like, that's really cool as a sports geek. I love that. Um, it since has exploded out now into the military and to commercial uh, applications, as we talked about a little while ago. So, um, and the neat thing there is you can take a lot of the same kind of methodologies and approach to learning from high-performance sports teams and apply it to these other environments like the business and uh, military. And that was the thing that got me most excited about the micro-learning piece is, uh, you know, we've seen people's attention spans continue to compress as the volume of stuff coming at them has gone up, right? Um, and now we've got everyone pretty much ubiquitous has a smartphone in their pocket, right? And so that has completely changed the way people interact with a lot of information in terms of why do I need to know things when I can just look it up on Google, right, on the fly? Or or why would I read a book when I can get it in video snippets on my phone and TikTok or YouTube or whatever? And so it's been interesting to watch that transformation flow through. And it directly applies to the concept of micro-learning, little small one to three little, uh, one to three minute micro-lessons delivered via video and sound straight to the smartphone. Tell me about this thing with Ole Miss where if I was reading correctly, basically they had this incredible turnaround after using microlearning. How did this story go? Yeah, so Old Miss has uh, been a customer of ours for a few years now. Um, they're, they're a traditional kind of football powerhouse from the South. Uh, their defense was like third or fourth worst in the country uh, the year before they started to work with the platform. And they very specifically, their defensive coordinator and his position coaches started to use the platform to try to focus in on the areas where they were not good, which were most. Um, and then one year, just season over season, they went from like fourth worst in the country to the top defense in the country. And so the, the team wound up ranked and they made the playoffs at the end of the year, the college football uh, championship. But um, But the defense was the big difference because they went from giving up like 25 or 30 points a game to like single digits in most games. And so that was shocking to everybody to watch. Yeah, that's incredible. So how did they get there? Do you know what they were using before this? And then after they implemented this micro learning, what learn to win is doing, what, what shift did that make in their actual learning process or how the coach was able to teach the, 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 gang whatever you the team i can't even come up yeah. with terms chris this is bad this is a, this is how bad of a sports fan i am so how, how do they make that turnaround no it's great well they went from the traditional methods of reviewing game film in a group and then studying things in a notebook to this idea of breaking it down into these one to three minute lessons which lets the players repeat them and repetition is a big key piece to this and also training on one concept at a time so you don't train them on four things at once. You break it down into the four pieces, and you train them on one concept at a time. And people just generally have much better comprehension and retention if you build uh, the training program to be structured that way. Like, you can take any body of information, no matter how big or technical or complicated, you break it into those bright-sized chunks, and then you basically teach it one concept at a time. And so it could be 
watch this one minute video and then you answer a question and then it's okay now read these two paragraphs and match the definitions or you know watch this film and now take your finger and draw the path that you should take as a player on a hot read kind of thing so there's and by mixing it up it fires the brain differently so you know traditional passive learning is okay go watch this half hour video and then take a quiz at the end or whatever and now by mixing up the media, keeping it in short bite-sized chunks, and then having knowledge check questions in between, it's active learning. The, the learner actually has to take action to advance through the material. And it's different parts of their brain. And so it literally fires your brain differently. And so not only is it more enjoyable for most folks, but the, but the comprehension and retention results go way, way up. I'm sure you guys have done research on that sort of brain firing up and what lights up in your head when you're using micro learning versus the traditional long form learning do you like what happens in your brain <laughs> that creates that that makes the the retention so much better uh, the biggest thing is just the engagement of the learner because it it turns out that if you have anybody do something for a long period of time, they start to tune it out after about eight to nine minutes in their brain. They're still semi-present, but their brain is off into some other areas. But even if it's really riveting material, people people's brains tend to wander after about the eight to nine minute mark. And so by keeping it under that, you've got their attention for the full span of whatever that lesson is. And then by forcing them to take action, they stay engaged, right? So it's not you're kind of resetting the clock every time you change medium or, or ask a question and make them take action in between the lessons. And so it's much more engaging in lots of different parts of the brain versus just like just sitting and watching a video, for example, or, or flipping through a deck, right? It makes complete sense to me as, you know, a native digital. And like you said, I learn, I probably, well, let's, let's think about this. I would say I have probably in my adult life since something like TikTok launched learned far more from literally scrolling through TikTok than I did from my entire four years in college. Yeah. Like that's how far we've come, right? And so this makes perfect sense to me. And yet I still run into lots of people, lots of people coming from the native analog perspective who do not get this. Mm -hmm. You know, thing, things I've heard, I'm curious how you would respond, but things I've heard are, you know... If we have micro learning or short form content, we're basically just playing into this short attention span problem that all of our kids are dealing with right now. You know, I, I hear that a lot. What, what would you say if someone says that? Well, I think that there's there's no getting around it. That's the style of interaction that the the folks have now, right? And so if you try to force them into a format that they're not comfortable with, it's not going to be very effective or they're not going to like it, right? So by serving it up to people like when they want it, when they want, when they want it, where they want it is kind of our goal. Um, and we, we joked that you, like you could take a lesson while you're standing in line at a Starbucks, for example, on your phone, right? A perfect example there. So you're taking good use of that time. It's not an overwhelming amount of material. You learned one thing while you're in line. So you got some value out of your time, right? Um, I think we're better off basically trying to package training in a way that people want to take it than to try to tell people how they should train because <laughs> they won't listen. <laughs> preach, preach, preach. <laughs> no, it's so true, Chris. Like your example there of when you're waiting in a Starbucks line or when you're pumping gas or whatever you're doing, taking that moment to learn something. I mean, isn't and, and that thing to your point earlier 
you're going to be much more likely to retain if it's interesting. Maybe it's told in a one minute story format. Maybe yep. it's got a effects that are visually compelling. Like there's so many things that I absorb on it on a day-to-day -day basis that if I learned it in the form of a 30 minute or an hour lecture, I would not retain anything. I would be more confused than take away one or two things, right? Like it, it seems like a no brainer, but, and yet this sort of thing happens all the time. <laughs> yeah. Can... There's, there's still resistance to making that change, but it's, it's, it's interesting is if you talk to folks, even the ones that are still guilty of of doing training that way is they have the same challenges, like sitting in a one hour lecture, trying to take notes, A, you're dividing your attention, B, can you stay dialed in for the full hour and actually get everything that they're teaching or not? And, and they struggle with that stuff. And there's been a number of studies that, that talk to that specific problem in traditional classroom, classroom lecture style. Um, there's another um, variant which is also you can take advantage of with microlearning, which is flipped learning, where you actually present the problem before you explain the, the how afterwards. And so you get people's brains engaged in how they might solve the problem before you teach them the backstory behind it. And so it's like it's it's the you give them the answer and then the, not the question kind of thing. It's almost like Jeopardy, right? It's reversed from the way you would normally think of stuff. And again, and it forces you, you to think differently. Learning? Yeah, flipped learning. Yeah. So how do you guys use flipped learning in the, the, so, okay, first question with learn to win, I'm assuming you guys are developing a lot of the training for your, for your clients and customers. And then they also get to develop their own training. H how do you guys break down the training, the training, the actual development of the content? Yeah, great question. So there's actually a range of behaviors uh, in the sporting world. We pretty much train the coaches and they build all their own stuff. So it's just to train the trainer. Um, in commercial and in military, it's a range of behaviors from if they've got dedicated staff, we can train them how to do it and they do it themselves. Other ones are outsourcing almost the entire function over to us and they just provide, you know, think of this base content. It could be PowerPoint decks or one hour videos or PDFs or whatever. And then we've got a professional services team that can take that content and turn it into this series of small micro lessons that's broken up in different media. And so that in anywhere, anywhere in between, that's the two extremes, right? Gotcha. Okay, cool. So whether it's you guys developing the content or you giving someone else the platform and them doing it, do you use this flipped learning concept in your actual training? And how do you teach others to do that as well? Yeah, we can. The, the, the micro lesson format actually lends itself really well to flipped learning because you can basically introduce challenges and um, and questions, and then explain to them kind of step by step how to arrive at the right answer after the fact, right? And so, but again, because it's not just like a one hour block, it's these little little bits of one minute here and two minutes there. It gives you a lot of freedom to build out content in a really interesting fa fashion, and it's it's kind of an art form to doing it right. It's kind of interesting. So even in the cases where we're training um, coaches and L and D folks how to use the platform. We'll come back and review the things that they've built and then give them pointers about how to spice it up, make it more effective, and you may want to shorten this or use different media here and those kinds of things. And then once they've done it for a little while, they get the hang of it. And it's really, really powerful. I can imagine. That's fascinating to think. I love that term, flip learning, because it, it is so powerful. It's If you know your destination before you learn something, I assume it's just like, 
you want to know your destination before you, you know, <laughs> before you get on the road and drive, right? Like you need to know what direction you're headed in. And I find so often from other places that I've learned, such as in college or even in high school, there's there's so little of that. So let me let me posit something here for you, Chris. I'm curious to get your thoughts. So I had someone on the show a couple of months ago. His name is Ted Dintersmith. And he and I got the chance to meet, I guess it was last week. Yeah, we went to this event he was speaking at. It's with teachers and um, with basically school faculty. And what he's doing right now, he had this long career in venture capital and was one of the most successful VC guys of the 90s. And for the last, I guess, since 97 or 98, so last like 20, 24 years, he's been working within the education system, trying to basically change how how students and teachers and and faculty teach our kids based on principles like what you and I are talking about, that Mm -hmm. students learn differently now, right? Like we're natively digital, we're not natively analog, and we have an entire school system that is designed by native analogs who are forcing kids to learn things that, you know, artificial intelligence does perfectly and for free, basically, right? Like teaching us mechanical processes that are more like what robots do, right? So Mm -hmm. anyway, we're at this event and he's talking about, you know, no child left behind and how we're hearing all this horrend, you know, quote unquote, horrendous data about NAEP scores dropping by catastrophic points. And then you look at the actual data and the scores really are not that big of a plummet. That's a whole other topic we don't necessarily have to go into right now. But basically, the point is, we've got this system set up, right, where in our schools, kids are being taught in a way that has changed very little since decades ago when we were supposed to be getting trained to be great factory workers who fell in line. So I just want to open up this can of worms with you. Like based on your lens that you look through mm-hmm. as someone who tra- you know teaches companies and teams and the military to think about micro learning as the best way to learn things, what's your general commentary on the school system? No, I think you, you pegged it in that it's it's always like the last to adopt or or adapt, I should say. Um, there is now a lot of experimentation going on in higher ed, uh, university level, and you're seeing a little bit of it in the high school level with active learning classrooms. And the big thing there is that there's hands-on experimenting going on. There's collaboration sessions. It's not passive sit and listen for a full hour lecture every day in period six, right? And so if like I've got a Google alert actually set on the on active learning, and so I see new articles popping up in this with those tags every day. And it's, it's really interesting to watch. So a lot of universities are going down this path now. Um, some of them have really formalized it and they've got big initiatives around making active learning be the primary methodology that they use for all their various classes, right? Um, so I think that there's an effort to try to move this direction, but it's, it's always slow, right? And if you go down into the public school systems, they're the last to adopt. They don't have the money. They don't have the expertise in most cases. Um, we're again, we're starting to see some activity, really mostly around STEM programs in high school, um, but not much. It's not every school. It's not everywhere. And I don't know of very many, you know, non-charter schools that are doing anything down at like elementary and middle school level in this way. It's interesting you say that. I I just watched um, a documentary 
that was was very fascinating. You may really enjoy this. It's called Most Likely to Succeed. And they basically follow the path. It's Ted Dentersmith produced it with Greg Whiteley, who did the documentary on Cheer. I don't know if you saw that on Netflix. Anyway, so basically they produced this documentary where they went and tried to find high schools that are doing this more active-based, project-based learning instead of forcing test prep down on, you know, eighth graders, ninth graders, yep. et cetera. And, um, and it was very encouraging to watch this. But there's this school that's out in San Francisco. I'm blanking out on the name of it. But it's basically a school where the, the person who founded it, I want to say this was back in the 90s, he basically said, I can't find talent that is what I like. They don't have the soft skills. They don't have what I need. So instead of trying to lobby to get his school district to change the way they educated, he just invented a new school from scratch. And it's a public institution, but basically the way the kids learn, which I love this so much, when you're in a class, it's not separated by subject. It's not separated by grade even. They're grouped together in these clusters, so maybe 20 or 30 students with two teachers. And the two teachers have, you know, expertise in science and math, engineering, and reading, writing, you know, basically they're jack-of-all-trades. Well, what they do is they have zero testing in the school. The way that they hold students accountable is at the end of every semester, they have this massive exhibition where community leaders and parents and everybody comes to this exhibition to see what these students have been able to create. So one example is the the students in a class that was around world history, um, you know, math, engineering, all put together. What they did was they took this idea, which was what causes civilizations to rise and fall. And the teacher said, get in groups and debate about what causes civilizations to rise and fall. Like, have this discussion, Mm -hmm. do research, and then you're going to visualize this, whatever you come up with in your group. You're going to make it visual by creating a massive wall exhibition that uses gear functions. Like, you can imagine it's got, like, giant wheels on it with toggles that move in and out. Like, visualize it, and you're going to show it off of the exhibition. And Chris, you should have seen the the kids' excitement. Just like they, some of them were staying after hours by four, five, six hours into the evening just to design, 3D design on, you know, a laptop, design Mm -hmm. their project and then print out these pieces in a 3D printer and then put it together and then debate about it with the other students. And like, it was brilliant. And Mm -hmm. I'm just sitting there like, if every school taught this way with this this sort of project-based learning imagine the types of kids that we would create you know <laughs> anyway yeah. i thought that was fascinating no that's really interesting and yeah, a lot of those elements uh it's whatever you can do to make the training as appealing and engaging to the learners you can the more effective it is and so that's a great example of that right so they're they're collaborating they're having a vigorous debate about a specific topic they're not just sitting and listening all day right what would you say in your life like thinking back to high school or college what are the things you can remember or the classes or the topics that stand out most and what format were they taught in? You know, it's interesting. I did, the classes that I enjoyed the most, that really stood out. It was always really dependent on the lecturer, right? The, the, who, who the professor was and their style of delivering. Um, 
so much of the material is just dry and someone's just up at the front droning on and on, right? Um, but you have like the one of my favorites was this guy, we called him Bucky. Was Buchanan Sharp was his name, professor. He was an, an Irish guy. And we were taking European history. And it was really interesting, A, to have someone from Europe teach us about European history. Very different perspective on it than a lot of Americans have. Um, his accent contributed to it as well. And he had a great sense of humor. And so uh, it, it was interesting. You were laughing. You were learning. It was just a super enjoyable experience. And like out of all the classes I took over four years, that was probably my all-time favorite class that I took. Um, you know, another one that stuck out and my major was computer science, so totally nothing to do with it. Right. Um, my other, one of my other favorite ones was classical music where you actually get to listen to music and then they would dissect the pieces and talk about the composers and the same kind of thing where it wasn't just a lecture. There was other pieces to it. Right. And they would train your ear and you would now start to pick out structures and things like that. You didn't realize were, were happening and why the music was good. And now you, you knew what it was. It was kind of really interesting, right? So, again, those are kind of examples of um, driving the classroom into more active style learning. And then uh, in one class that I had, two, two semesters in the evening, I took accounting, which is not exactly the most riveting, you know, thing you could think of. But he had us doing exercises on the chalkboard in front of the class. And so, again, it was like... It would just rotate through. You didn't just sit and listen. You had to get up and then explain to the class why you were doing what you were doing, how you were doing it. And there's the old saw about it. I can tell you and part of it will stick. And, and then you'll, I, I can show you and more of it will stick. But then you actually do it. More of it sticks. But if you have to teach other people, you really master the material. And that was his approach on that. And so um, I found that to be very entertaining as well because you're getting peppered with questions by your peers while you're up there on the chalkboard, right? I love that. Love that. Love that. And similar to what you shared, I mean, that was my experience. It was the teachers that forced you to, you know, you knew you were going to be the one next week or on Thursday who was going to have to get up and teach it. Yep. And it just drives this sense of learning. Just like in that school example, when you know you're going to be presenting, you're, you're going to be exhibiting your work to potentially thousands of people in the community you want to do well. Like you don't, you don't want to fuck it up in front of that many people, right? Like that's, nope. that's just what you, it's, it's human nature, right? I, uh, I, I think that's really, really fascinating. And it's just another reason that, you know, when I think about something like test prep as example, or, or, or well, this, this was interesting as well from that same school that had this, this project-based learning experience. The kids uh, at one point confronted their teacher and said, you know, we're scared we're not going to be able to test into a college, right? Like, we're scared we're not going to be able to make the SAT. And, um, and, and it just brought to mind, you know, we have all of these schools that, thank God, some of them are changing. But we have all these schools where the student's question is always, is this going to be on the test? Like we, we train them for that instead of, yep. wow, how do I apply this in my life? Or how, you know, can I teach this to someone else? Or really asking them, what do you get excited about learning? You mm -hmm. know, like there's, there's so many different approaches that we could take. And I'm, I'm really curious to ask you this too, Chris. So we have been, um, we just started a TikTok channel for a, the tech company that I'm launching. And part of that research is we're going out on the street and we're asking just random adults, did you go to college? 
and what do you do? And then basically trying to understand how many people are still working in the field that they went to school for. And unsurprisingly, about nine-tenths, four-fifths of the people we run into are not working in the field that they went to college for whatsoever, right? Like, first lady, she's, you know, new home, she works as a manager in new home construction. Her degree was in criminal justice with a minor in nursing. And she said she's 47 years old and just paid off student loans last year for a degree she's never used. Crazy. Like, and that's the story. So you said your degree was in computer science, mm-hmm. right? So w- would you say that you are currently or have, did you work in, in computer science at all in, in your career? So I would say it's, it's, it's been a good foundational skill set to have. I've been in sales and business development, but in the tech industry for my whole career. And so it's very helpful to be able to understand at a technical level how products and frameworks and things fit together. Um, but I, what I discovered by the time I graduated is that I did not have the appetite to sit and program for 10 or 12 hours a day. I, I needed the human, human interaction, which I can tell, tell you got the same desire for. Um, but understanding that at least at a fairly uh, technical level makes it easier to actually make a lot of decisions around how you bring a startup tech to market. And that's really my go-to-market is my thing, but it's always been around software and hardware. So, um, But I will tell you this, and along to your last point, though, just kind of interestingly, um, I've hired probably four or 500 salespeople over the course of my career. And the very best ones have degrees from the strangest things. Uh, it's completely unrelated. Anthropology, you know, sociology, you know, psychiatry, whatever. It doesn't really make any difference. It's more about attitude and basic skill sets. And then after that, their desire to learn and grow. Um, but you've, I've got a lot of folks that went to school and took business degrees that can't sell. So it's kind of interesting how that works out. That's the story I keep hearing. And I mean, it seems obvious to me, right? Like as a native digital with about 63 to 65%, depending on what study you look at, of my generation saying, hmm, I don't know that college is worth it. Like we we watch a ton of our millennial peers who did that, you know, went through college, they jumped through the hoops and they ended up working as baristas because they can't find work or mm-hmm. they found out the degree they got. They started their first job in that degree, whether it was healthcare administration or engineering or whatever, and they hated it, right? Like just hate it. Yep. So let me bounce this idea off of you. What if a student, you know, thinking back to when you were 18, 19, if you had had the opportunity to gain the skills that you have, that you've used your whole career, you know, knowledge of hardware and software and all that, but ultimately business development, sales skills, but you had experienced what, you know, different careers in those fields looked like before you ever went to college, would that have been valuable or would you have made a different decision about your actual degree path? I think it would have made an immense difference. Um, Interestingly, all the skills that I got during that period uh, were not in college. Like other than the ability to understand the technical aspect of computer stuff, I got zero business skills out of it. Um, but internships is, is, I think, the answer to that question at the end of the day, because you can immerse in a business and see what the people's day-to-day jobs are like, what they actually do, what they do and don't like, which parts of those appeal to you, right? And you can kind of direct your career path into that area. 
or you could do an internship and discover, like you're saying, like this really sucks. You know, I really have no interest in ever working in the in- insurance industry or whatever, right? Um, so I think the internships is actually an excellent thing, and people should definitely do that uh, all three summers if they have college if they can afford to, right? And and prior to that, if they can as well, right? But not everybody that's pre-college gets a chance to go get exposed to some of these environments, right? But the See, yeah, uh, the majority of them don't like there's no there's no place to go there there's no way to get an internship right now unless you do jump through the hoops of getting into college and then being able to pay for it and be able to take that summer and go intern like it's it's crazy to me yep yep exactly so i've got just a personal note i've got two kids now one just graduated from college in may and the other one is a junior this year and so we've had, you know, these, these conversations over and over and over with the two of them over the last, you know, 10 years or so. And it was kind of interesting trying to pick a major, which school to go to, really, really hard decisions for a 17, 18 year old, like really hard. Right. And so a lot of it is like, well, I heard this from this friend and this from that friend. And, but I was trying, I was trying to give them a perspective. It's unless you're on a, career path that requires advanced degrees, like you're going to be a doctor, right? Or you're going to be a rocket scientist or something. Um, At the end of the day, if your goal is to get a bachelor's degree, it's really basically about checking the box so that you're not discriminated against when you go apply for these jobs later as someone who doesn't have a degree. And so, and then from that perspective, again, hiring people from all kinds of different backgrounds and degrees into sales, for example, totally unrelated and their success correlation is also totally unrelated. It's really kind of interesting. And so I told them is even whatever degree you pick, pick something that you like, because I want you to enjoy it, engage and and master something, whether or not it's necessarily going to be your job path, because you may get out and discover, well, that was really interesting stuff, but the jobs in that field suck. Or my first job in this other thing is really exciting and cool, but it's very different than what I studied. So, so just get through, check the box, right? And and then, so that if you're not, neither one of my kids expressed interest in the, you know, 10-year medical school path. So we're, we're going for the bachelor's degree and then out. Um, the other one is, unless you're going to cherry pick one of the top, like, 12 or 15 schools in the country, no one actually cares where you got your degree from, right? If it's not Harvard, Yale, Stanford, you know, Georgetown, one of the, you know, Ivy League or uh, MIT, uh, people really don't care that you got it from, you know, ABC state or the local, you know, city university or whatever you got. So you've got a bachelor's degree in something you graduated. No one cares about your GPA after you had your first job either. That's another one. What was your GPA? No one cares. So, but check the box and game on from there. Just figure out what you do and don't want to do with your career path. And so, um, it leads to some interesting conclusions and dialogue, certainly with your kids when they're trying to make those decisions. No kidding. No kidding. What would you say, Chris, if one of your kids had come to you and said, I'm just not going to school, like I'm not going to get my bachelor's? Did that ever happen to you or did you coach them through that or what would be your response? It, it didn't happen with our two because they, they both wanted to go to college. They also both wanted to go out of state to go to college. Was, I don't know if that was just to get away from me. I don't cha-ching, know. Cha-ching, cha-ching. <laughs> <laughs> but I would, we, were, we were actually happy for them to both leave the state so they could get experience outside of California. Because if you grew up in the Bay Area and you think this is normal for the rest of the world, you're, you're a little uh, off base there. So. Um, one went to Ohio, one went to Colorado. So they're they're getting a radically different set of experiences and perspectives now, which is great. Um, 
there's a number of folks I know that like the trades, there's very high earning, very comfortable lifestyles you can have if you can master certain trades. And you don't need to go get a four-year degree to go do that. And so there's a lot of specialty schools for those sorts of career paths that are available to folks. And, um, you know, we basically just told them it depends on really what you ultimately want to do work-wise, probably whether that's going to be a problem that you do or don't have a degree, right? Um, in corporate America, the non-degree thing is a big, big deal. You know, you, your resume just gets tossed when it comes in, typically, unless you've got a connection some other way to that company. Exactly. It's something I definitely, definitely hope to see change and be a part of the change because that is it's a problem. I, I have been reading several articles lately that are saying, you know, many of the largest companies are dropping degree requirements. And it's exciting to see this wave start to move because I am a huge proponent of, of kids who learn, like to, to bring this back around through micro learning. Mm -hmm. Like imagine, you know, just take an example, a marketing degree. You don't know shit when you get out of college with a marketing degree, because you've been taught by professors who literally did not mark do anything in marketing in their yeah. real lives. They just started teaching marketing yeah. and you can learn more by posting some TikTok videos and building a channel in, in today's world of marketing than you can from a four-year degree. I was just talking to a peer of mine recently who has a marketing degree and now she's working for um, uh, a Michelle Sealer Tucker, who is, you know, huge brand and has, who owns, you know, dozens of businesses and anyway, and she's basically just saying, everything I do on my job right now, I learned in high school from posting on TikTok and never studied any of this in college, all the things I'm doing for her, you know? And it's just this story is over and over and over. And to your point from the beginning, if micro learning is the way of the future and, and the way of the now and the way of the future mm -hmm. for native digitals, then how much more are we going to see, you know? are massive education institutions who can't seem to keep up with the times having to shift or die when it comes to this because companies like you guys learn to win are teaching this in micro learning format and TikTok and YouTube and every every platform out there is teaching in a micro learning context. So those institutions are going to have to shift or die and I'm I'm we're watching it happen before our eyes which is really really interesting. Yeah, it's going to be really fascinating to watch the university system evolve or, or not over the, this period. I mean, it's becoming price prohibitive for most Americans now. Um, graduating where you're paying student debt off till you're 47 is a great example of how it's not working, right? For a degree you never used. <laughs> right, exactly. Now, what's interesting is, you know, again, outside of the, the traditional college system, you've got examples of companies that are doing um, career path development on micro learning. So we've got a partner in San Francisco called Climb Hire. This is one of my favorite ones to talk about. They specialize in taking non-degreed people that have day jobs and they teach them at night some advanced skills that'll let them get high paying jobs. And so the first program they rolled out was how to be a Salesforce CRM administrator. So you can imagine you've got folks, you know, no degree, right? probably no exposure to CRM prior to this. And they're able to teach them not only how to use the platform, but to be an administrator, how to install it, how to manage it, how to do reporting and those kinds of things. And these, these people come out of those programs and they can get $800,000 a year jobs. And they don't charge the students, which is the cool thing. If you go to the class and you get your certificate and then you get a job, 
you pay a percentage of your first year's income in the job that you got back into the school. And that funds the next cohort of these students that are coming in at night to learn one of these new crafts. And they've now started to branch off into other areas like customer support roles and things like that. But they've graduated hundreds and hundreds of people, non-degreed, into six-figure jobs using microlearning. It's super cool. That is amazing. It's like moonlighting schools from back in the 1800s. Yep. Like, take someone who's doing a trade or a regular job, teach them a new skill set at night, and ha- and help them advance their income. What what is what are some of the success cases that have come out? Of, you said it's called Climb Higher. Yeah, Climb Higher. Yep. Okay, so Climb have you said hundreds of students have been graduating, but. Are there any specific people that you've been able to meet from their program or the difference it's made in their lives? I, I mostly know the folks that build the curriculum. Um, and I know the, the CEO and founder, um, Neetson, who's a very, very bright and interesting lady to talk to. You should probably, I'd be happy to introduce you to her. You would dig talking to her. Um, they had the original concept. Uh, but what they're, they're, they've got a graduation rate, which is somewhere north of 80% of people that begin the program, finish and get the certificate. And then the hiring rate is somewhere equally high, like 75% of the people that get their certificates are getting those jobs. And in in most cases, it's like doubling their income, which is wild. That's phenomenal. I love hearing stories like that. It's, it, it brings so much hope to the fact that there are alternative paths Mm -hmm. to college and that is changing so quickly and so rapidly And, you know, whether it's adults or students, you know, when I look at my peers, my siblings, you know, all these kids who are coming up to that 16, 17 point, and they're starting to get grilled with the questions of what are you going to major in? Where are you going to school? What's your plan, plan, plan? And they're just like, I have no idea, man. (laughs) Like, what, what do I even do with that question? Now they can turn to solutions like Climb Higher or take a gap year to learn something on YouTube, get a Google certificate, go into a trade, apprentice somewhere. There's so many options, and that multiplication of life options is just incredible. It's just amazing. Yeah, it's really So are there any final thoughts about microlearning, about your view of the world that you want to leave us with? I think the thing that's interesting is, again, being a total kind of novice to the space other than the couple of years that I've been with this company now, um, you know, my previous experience with it was the standard school system and then university uh, training that I've had since then has been delivered in the usual kind of boring methods where you've got someone lecturing at you for an hour with a PowerPoint. Used to be in person, now it's over Zoom, you know, but um it's not very effective. And I don't know anybody that likes to learn that way and, and anybody that'll argue that it is effective. Uh, and so now starting to deliver training that's got immediately uh, a good applicable value to your job, doing your job better, or being able to do a job that you don't know how to do prior. And basically it's delivered in the like the YouTube TikTok style. Uh, it, it just appeals to people. And especially the younger set that grew up like you, you know, digital natives, right? And so the we we joke we have a couple of different jokes. We talk about the one where you could take the lesson when you're in line at Starbucks, but the other one is you could squeeze a lesson in between your TikTok and Instagram sessions as well. You know, it works out well that way. <laughs> oh my gosh, cramming in more. <laughs> uh-huh. That's amazing though. No, you're you're completely right. I mean, Gen Z's toggling between, you know, seven to eight 
to nine screens on average. And imagine, you know, they're flipping between their TikTok session, their YouTube session, their micro learning on learn to win their, you know, it's, it's amazing. It's a cool world we live in, I think. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective, Chris. This has been good. You are welcome back anytime. And um, yeah, thanks for helping change the world and in this direction. I can't wait to see what happens. Thank you. No, it's great to be here. I'm happy to chat about this anytime. It's a very, very interesting thing. Thanks for listening to the Native Digital, Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. If you're looking to connect and talk more about attracting and retaining Native Digitals, you can reach me at hannahgwilliams.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Yeah.